Well, you may be seated. Thanks for coming out today. We are starting a brand new series called Surprising Christmas. So that's why you got a little surprise this morning and Bob just let it loose. That was awesome. And so every week's going to be a little be a little surprise in there for for us. But the interesting thing about Christmas is the different ways you perceive Christmas as an adult and as a child. Think back to a child, Christmas couldn't get here, right? I mean, Christmas could be a week off and it felt like a year, right? You're like, ah, just wanting Christmas to get here. But when you're an adult, Christmas comes too fast. Can I get an amen from somebody? It's like, did we just enter in a time warp of some sort from when you get older into adulthood? Or maybe that is part of adulthood, that Christmas comes fast. But, but think of it as Christmas as a child. Christmas as a child, there's this sense of waiting, right? This sense of waiting and this sense of hoping. You know, you're waiting and you're hoping and you're waiting and you're hoping. You're wondering, what gifts am I going to get this year? Who am I going to get to see at Christmas? And how many times are my parents going to allow me to watch Elf? You know, last year I got to get away with 100, maybe 200 this next year. You know, you're just waiting and you're hoping, you're waiting, you're hoping. And Christmas comes like as a surprise. But it's not that way as an adult, is it? As Christmas as an adult, there's planning involved, right? There's planning there's structuring, someone has to go buy the presents, someone has to get the tree ready, someone has to do all this. There's planning and there's also preparing. They're preparing the meal, preparing the visit. Who's going to go where? Are we going to visit family? Are they going to come here? So there's all this kind of stuff. But as a child, all it is as Christmas is surprising. As an adult, all it is is planning. And I thought that that's the same way in regards to a present. If you think about a present... If you receive a present, it's a complete surprise, unless you're like me, and I figured out how to kind of get the corners and kind of figure out, anybody else do that? I'm outing myself on stage. I shouldn't do that. But um, <clears throat> if you're receiving a gift, it's a complete surprise, and, and you just kind of get to receive it. But if you're the one giving the gift, someone had to wrap this. Someone had to purchase this. Someone had to plan this. In fact, this is, might be the most beautiful gift I've ever seen. From the, isn't that good? awesome? Except it has glitter, and so I've got glitter all over me now. But um, <laughs> glitter is the plague, isn't it not? I mean, it just goes everywhere, and you can't get, it, get, get rid of it. But uh, someone prepared it, and I think that's exactly what the Christmas story is. For humanity, Christmas was a surprise. But for God... It was carefully planned from the very beginning. And think of the two perspectives, right? It's a surprising, because think of the context, and we're going to dive into the context this morning, but the surprising context of the first century when Jesus entered in to uh, his steps on the page of history, it's a surprising context for us, but yet for God, it was his perfect timing. For surprising messengers, as we think about the shepherds and the wise men, and we think about who these people that are that are, are delivering the message of the birth of Jesus, we think it's surprising messengers, but it was actually God's purposeful herald for a reason. It was surprising unveiling that, that Jesus is born in a manger, and yet it was God's plan. So we see the same thing where you see the world is surprised, but God is not. 
But today we're going to be talking about the context, the surprising context. And if you like history, you're going to love this message. If you don't like history, uh, just fake it. Uh, don't Just fake like you like history because it's interesting. It's very interesting. Uh, but let's talk about context. Now, context is something uh, we all know about, right? Because we base most of our decisions on context. If you're a business person, you're taking a read from the economy on a national level, then you're thinking about the economy at a local level, you're looking at inflation, you're looking at all this stuff, and you're making the decision, do, is this the time to expand the business or not? I mean, I want to make an informed decision, right? But for, and so you're reading the context. The, the same is true if, if you're married and, and, and you, you know, you're, you're gauging the context and the mood of your spouse before you present, can I buy a big purchase? So you all know what I'm talking about. Uh, and all of a sudden you happen to do the dishes and it's a surprise and then you're taking out the trash. No one has to tell you. And all these things because you're like, I, I just, you know, Make sure everything's a good context. So when I ask if I can put a lift kit on my truck, then the answer is yes. Right? Okay, that was just maybe hopeful for this year, for Christmas. But uh, uh, same thing with kids. Uh, a, a smart kid are going to read their parents, and they're going to be extra nice before they ask, can I go play with my friends, you know, or, or go hang out and have a, a fun time at their house. So we, we're, we're, we get really good at reading context. And we do so from a very young age all the way to now. But I wonder, how does this play in reading our context in regards to the, the context of our faith? If you're a Christian, this idea of faith, or, or I like to say it like trust in God, this idea of trusting in God, how does reading the context and having trust or faith in God play in? Because when we begin to impose our criteria of decision-making on reading everything, making sure everything's right to make this decision to go forward, how does that really play in with faith? And does it seem like it's competing a little bit? Well, let me give you an example, like prayer. When, when, when we begin to read things as far as the context and it comes into our prayer life, we begin to view prayer as this is an opportunity to try to direct God to say, hey, God, the economy's doing like, you know, the inflation's going up. So we need to, you know, I need you to bless me with this house before the interest rates get before I can, you know. And so we, we use prayer more as directing God instead of using that time to surrender to God when we're reading the context. The same is true with our steps of our faith journey. We it's almost as if we want everything to be positive in the context before I take that step in my faith journey, that next step, whatever that next step is. It's like we just had a baptism, you know, and, and, and uh, you know, I, I know the people aren't asking this, but they're like, how, what is the temperature of the water before I get baptized? You know, I mean, let's just make sure, uh, did you put a little Clorox before the last person? You know, I just want to make sure uh, that everything, you know, I mean, have we got so far where we're trying to make sure that everything's so positive before I take that next step. And where does faith come into play here? Where does trust come into play here? That if I have to make sure everything's right, I have to, everything has to seem right before I can do this and, and before I do that. And, and where does faith come into play? And he, here's, I guess, a question I want us, I want it to kind of wrestle with uh, a little bit this morning, but really could kind of stick with us, is this. Do we give any room for God to do something outside of our plan? 
or something even supernatural. As a Christian, have we so planned our life? Have we so worked in, and, I, and I'm a person, I love vision, I love having a plan, I love having a, 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 a mission to go forward, but have we so overplanned that there's no room in our life for God to do something outside of our plan? Or even, come on now, supernatural. Something outside of like only God can do. But can I tell you, I, I know that reading context is important. We can't get rid of that. It's important, but it can't be the only determining factor for a Christian when we start moving forward with our life, especially in regards to faith. And can I tell you, the Christmas story is an amazing example of this. It's an amazing example where God moves in no matter what the context is, and from the outside probably looks like this is the worst possible time, and yet God says, no, this is the perfect time. So I want to talk to you about the Christmas story, but I, I want to always make sure that we know that this is not some kind of fable, right? That the Christmas story does not start off with once upon a time. It doesn't. It, it doesn't start off that way. It, it's, it starts off completely different. The Christmas story is not a legend. Uh, it's not like, you know, Washington cutting down the cherry tree or Hansel and Gretel saying, well, it's a, it, it happened, but it's not really historically accurate. No, the Christmas story is a true story. It's historically accurate. In fact, the writer of the birth narrative, Luke, takes such careful uh, careful uh, care in making sure that it's so accurate that he gives us clues. And anytime you read the Gospel of Luke, he gives you all kinds of clues of, of who is the governor, who is the emperor, who is this, who is that, where, why did this happen, and when did this happen, and gives you all these clues because Luke is, in a sense, telling you and I, I dare you to check my facts. I want you to check out my facts I, because this happened. I'm not writing this as a story. This happened. This is history. So this is how Luke then starts his narrative talking about the birth of Jesus. He starts it off like this. In those days. In those days. It's historic. It's not a fable. It's not, it's not a legend. It's historically accurate. It says in those days. And he gives us a clue. In those days, Caesar Augustus. Now, who is Caesar Augustus? He's, he's claiming, he's talking about someone. And then, so let's find out who is this Caesar Augustus and why does he have, get his name in the narrative of the birth of Jesus? Well, are you ready for your history lesson? Okay, some of y'all aren't so much, but it's okay. I'll win you over. Check it out. This is Gaius Octavius. Before he was Caesar Augustus, he was Gaius Octavius, born 63 B.C., and he has a famous great uncle, which is Julius Caesar. Now, you've heard of Julius Caesar, um, he, very famous uh, leader, king, emperor, not quite emperor at this place, but uh, he, his, his niece had a son, and that was Gaius Octavius. But Julius Caesar is about expanding Rome and expanding Rome's influence. And so through the expansion of Rome, uh, Gaius Octavius is going to lead a campaign for his great uncle to Spain. 
Because no one really could take over Spain, but Gaius Octavius took a, a legions of troops, and man, they did great. And they took over Spain. And that, like, you know, Julius Caesar took notice. Why? Because Julius Caesar does not have an heir. He does not have a son. So he makes the choice after not even benevolence to Gaius Octavius. He makes the choice to adopt Gaius Octavius as his son, which would make him his heir. He does this about 46 BC. Well, a few years later, uh, we see uh, something big happens. March 15th, 44 BC. Do you remember that? The Ides of March. No one paid attention in ninth grade history. Okay. Uh, the Ides of March. What happens? Julius Caesar is assassinated on the steps of the Senate building by the Senate. <laughs> and you thought our senators and president were mad at each other. These guys, at least they're not killing each other. These guys uh, stabbed him and made it a kind of a public spectacle. This happens in 44 BC. Well, Gaius Octavius, not knowing that he's been written in the will as the heir of the, to be the emperor of Rome, is making his way back to Rome. And as he's on his way to Rome, he discovers what happens, right? He discovers what happens that he is now the heir. And so he changes his name from uh, Gaius Octavius to Octavius Caesar. Caesar's being the title as, as I am now going to be the Caesar. But then something interesting happens. 42 BC, the Senate, and I don't know if they felt bad about this, but they're like, well, maybe we shouldn't have killed Julius Caesar. But they declared, the Senate declared that Julius Caesar was divine, right? Ooh, like that? Divine. Ooh, glowing. That Julius Caesar, I mean, we killed him, but Julius Caesar is divine. He was one of the gods. So if he is one of the gods, then what would that make Octavius Caesar? He changes his name to Augustus Caesar, meaning son of the divine or son of the gods. So Augustus Caesar now lives and, and moves the whole empire of Rome into what we call emperor worship, where they believe that the emperor is now divine, called son of the gods or son of the divine. And so now that, that, that means a big deal. Because if the emperor says something into law, that's one thing. But if he's a god, if he is divine, then that means you better follow it. And if you don't, we have the right to kill you. So it gives them right to, to really forth the effort there. And so you think, well, why in the world would God send Jesus to be born in a manger as he's called the son of God in the midst of an environment where they've all declared that Caesar is God. Because I think God wanted to show that he is establishing a different kind of kingdom. And there could be no better opportunity to show the stark contrast between Caesar and Jesus. That Jesus is the son of God. And, and But again, the whole empire is worshiping, whether forced to or not, worshiping Caesar as the son of God. And this is where the story continues. 
In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree. Now, he's a divine person, so you have to listen. That a census should be taken into the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Another little hint there on, on, but this is a true story. Now, now, why is he making this decree? Well, you know, Caesar Augustus decides that instead of taxing areas, instead of taxing communities, we're going to tax people individually. So if you've ever been mad at the government for income tax, it starts with Rome. Blame Caesar Augustus. Because they, they changed the tax code to being an uh, a individual tax, income tax. And so th- in order to do that, you have to take a census. And to, ha- to make a census, you have to go to your own hometown. Well, interesting enough, if you were there in the first century, you're thinking to yourself, well, who's in charge? Well, it seems like Caesar Augustus is in charge. In fact, he's so in charge that I have to go back to my hometown to register so I, have, so I can pay taxes individually instead of in a group. And so you're thinking, well, why in the world? Because, well, Justin, Caesar's in charge. Is he? Is Caesar in control? Little did Caesar know that hundreds of years earlier, there was a prophecy made by a prophet named Micah. Micah 5.2 said this. Micah in his prophecy said this. He says, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. This prophet speaks and says, there will be a ruler, there will be a Messiah that will come from, help me, Bethlehem. Yeah, it's not a test. It's on the screen there. Bethlehem. It's going to come from Bethlehem. Well, guess where Mary and Joseph are from? They're actually, where are they living right now? Mary and Joseph, they're living in Nazareth. Nazareth Nazareth is about 60 miles north of Bethlehem. And so God in his infinite ability and and, and, and power says, I'm going to use the, you know, the the greed of an emperor that thinks he's a son of God to to make people go back to their hometown because that's where Jesus would need to be born in Bethlehem, not in Nazareth. Now, this was all fun and games, but for Mary that has to, as pregnant, ride a donkey for three days to Bethlehem from Nazareth. Can I get an amen from the ladies in here? That's that's the suffering. But it's again, you're thinking, well, who's in charge? God has a plan. And the Christmas story is a reminder that God is not bound by a context to enact his plan. God doesn't put out a polling numbers to see whether he should do this or do that. God will enact his plan because God, and this is kind of a churchy word, is sovereign. And he's going to move forward with his plan no matter what. No matter who's in office, no matter who, what politicians, whoever's in power, whoever's governor, whoever's that. God is moving forward in his plan Whether the context is good or bad, God doesn't need anyone's permission to move forward with this plan. In fact, I I love this, what Paul reminds us Christians, because sometimes as Christians, we forget. 
We forget, we, we take a read of the context and we think, oh, this is bad stuff, this is bad. And we, and we get so, in fact, maybe we watch way too much news for our own good, right? And so we're, we're inundated with all this. We see this and we're like, oh God, how can you do this and how? But Paul reminds us that even when Jesus came on the scene, he said this in Romans 5, 6, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. That even though we may look at the context and go, God, what are you doing? You're bringing in Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, into an environment where there's already someone calling themselves the Son of God. Jesus, what are you doing? I mean, I mean, God, what are you doing? Because Jesus is now born in a manger, not a castle. God, what are you, what are you doing that, that you're moving, you're using the tax code to somehow move them to Bethlehem that fulfills a prophecy? What are you up to? You see, here's the thing. What we see is a surprising context. God has planned from the very beginning. God was not surprised by the tax code change. God was not surprised by any of this. In fact, God used all this for his glory. Now, what does that mean for us? As, as we see this, because it, it is easy for us to get so inundated with the context that we kind of lose sight of God's plan. So what if we live differently? What if our faith or our trust in God informed our context and not the other way around? What if when we prayed, our prayers were less about directing what God, I need you to do, and more of, God, I'm just surrendering to you? What if when we're to take a step in our faith, <coughs> excuse me, if we take a step in our faith that we're not always judging and make, making sure everything is so perfect so we can take that step in our faith, and it was more, God, I'm trusting you no matter what the context says. Because this is the interesting thing about God. This is something that I know if you're kind of new to faith, this, it boggles the mind. But God literally chooses to work through our weaknesses more than our strengths. He chooses to almost use more difficult times than good comfortable times. And the Christmas story just enacts this and talks about this. And, and if we are going to get get to be a part of the plan and the purposes of God, we've got to be comfortable going through difficulties and, and making sure that, and, and saying yes to Jesus, even through our weakness, not always through our strength. Now, let me give you a few examples, because I, I feel like you're not believing me yet, so I, I'll win you over. Moses. Another biblical example. Moses, we see him from, from one angle, and we would say, Moses, you're one of the greatest leaders. I mean, if you want a picture of a great leader, that's Moses. Well, he didn't start that way, did it? In fact, if you know the story of Moses, when God is calling Moses, Moses has 101 million excuses of why he can't do what God has called him to do, to lead hundreds of thousands of people across the desert into a promised land, but to free them first from Egyptian uh, slavery. And Moses is like, who me? <laughs> the guy 
did not have a confident bone in his body. He said he stutters when he speaks. He can't, he can't possibly do this. In fact, if you look at the story of Moses, it was rough. There were some times that Moses lost his temper. If you're a leader, uh, that never happens to us leaders, is it? You lose your temper. Someone makes you mad. Lose your temper. He, 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 um, in fact, there's, he had a problem with control issues. And he never delegated, and so his father-in-law had to kind of help him out with that. And so you see it was rough, but at the end of his life, we look at Moses and go, wow, Moses, you're such a leader. But we see it from one perspective, because we don't say, Moses, you must have gone through, you must have listened to a bunch of TED Talks. No. We say, Moses, God used your weakness and made you something great. And it doesn't reflect on you, Moses, it reflects on the God that you serve. It's an amazing thing. That's why God uses our weaknesses. We look at Abraham. Abraham, big time weakness. He's called to be the father of nations, but in his late age, he has no kids. Well, Abraham, how can you be a father of nations if you don't have any offspring? That's a real problem, but God uses what seems to be impossible and does something unbelievable. And in his late age, he has children. And, and from that, we call him Father Abraham. And if you're raised in church and a little kid, you had a song that you say, Father Abraham had many. Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> right? And we sing about that, but at the time, it seemed impossible. But with impossible with God, it seems absolutely possible. And he does. He works in that. He, he uses people like Elijah. I love Elijah. You know what? Because the brother is flawed. <laughs> uh, Elijah had a temper on him, and the guy was prone to depression, right? And so he would go back through. He was he's so emotional, and yet God used him in a powerful way to speak the word to people, to his, the, God's word to people. I think about the disciples, and there's a lot of things. When you think of the, look at the disciples and you read through the gospel account, all you can say is that is one motley crew, right? I mean, that's a, that's a tough crew. But even looking at the political persuasions of the disciples, I think this is so apl- applicable to us that on one side you had Matthew, which would be a friend of Rome as a tax collector. On the other side, you had Judas and Simon and some of these other zealots that were insurrectionist against Rome. How in the world would God be, or Jesus be able to hand over these, this Christian movement, the church, to people that couldn't even agree politically? And yet they did. You know why? Because something unified them that was greater than their politics, and that was Jesus and the message of Jesus. If you want to talk about the division in America today on how it's going to happen, can I tell you, it's not going to happen by any political means. It's going to happen when people pledge allegiance to a greater thing than their politics, and that is Jesus Christ. Amen? Okay. You kind of looked at me, and I'm like, well, let's talk about Paul. Paul. Paul, a biblical example. It's interesting. Paul was a, a zealot, a Jewish, religious. I mean, he, he was so steeped in that. And yet when God calls him to be a missionary... He doesn't do so to, his, to the Jewish people, although he did have, it was mainly to the Gentile pagan people. 
It was through Paul's weakness, and, and Paul had to learn how to take this understanding of, of the gospel and, and, and the message of Jesus to people that were far from him, pagan-wise, not necessarily even Jewish. And so you see, the very person, I was saying, no, no, Paul, you need to go to the Jewish people because you're, you would understand that. And, and in fact, you see that through Acts, that he kept trying to go back to the synagogues, but God kept moving him to be a missionary to the Gentiles. And you and I are a part of that. The fact that all the disciples, when they scattered, they didn't really scatter. They hung out in Jerusalem. But Paul said, okay, I'll take the rest of the world. You guys take on Jerusalem. And God used him in a powerful way. I'm so glad Paul didn't miss out. I'm so glad that Paul, Moses, and Elijah didn't look at their context and say, yeah, but I've got a temper. I can't lead. Oh, I'm prone to depression. I can't do anything for God. Oh, I, 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 I can't be in, a, in relationship with them because we don't politically see eye to eye. I'm so glad that they didn't put that in their context. They didn't allow their context to dictate how God was going to use them. That they instead said, they surrendered to God and said, whatever you want to do, I'm willing. So my question to you is this. Is your context keeping you from experiencing God's plan? Is your context, I mean, God's going to do his plan with or without us. I don't know about you, but I want to be involved. I want to go forward. I, I want to be a part of it. I want to be a part of something that's greater than myself. I want to be a part of something that outlives me. I, I want to be a part of what God is up to. But sometimes it's the context of our relationships that keep us held back, doesn't it? I mean, let's just be honest. If we, if Everyone in our circle, it really kind of holds us back. And maybe it's the context of your relationship where, where it seems like you want to move forward in your faith in God, and yet it seems like the, the, all your friends kind of have a different message. They're like, oh, why are you being so radical on that? Why are you being, I mean, come on, everybody. I mean, you have one message, and, and maybe it's the context of the relationships that's holding you back from, from really seeing what God is up to and wanting to do in your life. Or maybe it's not just relationships. Maybe it's trouble. And can I tell you, I mean, Christmas is a wonderful time of the year, but for a lot of people, it's a difficult time of year. It's a difficult time of year because for some, Christmas is a reminder of who's not here anymore. And maybe it's not just not here anymore, but maybe it's the reality that the dream that you had for your family is not the reality of what it is. In the family, we have to, we only half the family can meet at Christmas because there's, the relationship's been split and the reality sets in and you're trying to figure that out. And Christmas is a reminder of that. And it's easy sometimes when you're going through difficult circumstances to that's all you see is a difficult circumstance. But I love what C.S. Lewis said. He says that God shouts in the megaphone of our pain. That even though it's a troubled context, that can be the very vehicle that can move us to a deep and close relationship with God. Because it's only when you're walking through troubled times when you realize that God is the only one you can rely on. And that only has the ability to be relied on to that degree that you need. As great as your spouse is, they can never be your savior. As great as your pastor is, he can never be your God. As great as your small group is, they can never fulfill the gap that only your Heavenly Father can fill. 
Maybe it's the context of routine. I love routine. Uh, actually, I like routine. I don't love routine. My wife loves routine. I mean, she, she loves routine. I, I like it. Uh, but I think sometimes routine is something that we do to kind of function in life, but it also can work against us. It can create us an environment where we sit in our comfort and we stay in a routine. And I wonder sometimes if our routine keeps us bound by seeing something outside of it, of what God wants to do. Because I, I don't know about you, you look at all the biblical examples, none of them did God work in the routine. It was always outside of the routine. It was always something that pushed them outside of their comfort zone. Is it your context, the routine? Is, it, is comfort now becoming, because this is what I realized, comfort and faith and trust in God rarely occupy the same space. And are you willing to let some comfort go to be able to take some radical steps with God? Is your context keeping you from seeing God at work? Maybe it is. Maybe this morning, maybe this kind of a wake-up call. As you come to church, you were thinking about, you know, sugar plums. So whatever a sugar plum is, sounds awesome. Don't know what it is, but you got that on the brain. You got Christmas on the brain, but maybe just maybe God is like, why don't you take a step this Christmas and let the Christmas story be an example of taking those steps of saying, I'm not going to allow relationships, I'm not going to allow routine, I'm not going to allow trouble to keep me from seeing, God, what you're up to, and I want to be a part. And so I, I want to invite you to say a prayer with me this morning, if that's you. If you're like, I, I'm ready kind of, I, I really want to make a kind of a commitment. And so I kind of made a version of a prayer. I, I say kind of di these different kind of prayers all the time. And for me, uh, I don't know, I'm weird like that. Uh, I, I need to do something like physical when I'm praying, you know. And so um, if you see me doing stuff like that, just be like, oh, he's just praying, you know, bless him, God, you know. Um, he's, he's, not, he's not weird. Uh, well, I am that, but, you know, anyway. Uh, but this is something I like to do. Uh, There's a prayer. It's called an open-handed prayer. And I, and I want to give you a version of this prayer that I, I say a lot. And I'd like for you to say this because this could be a commitment that you make to God to say, I'm ready to take that step. And the, the prayer simply goes something like this. As my hands are open, so, am, so is my life towards you, Heavenly Father. So as my hands are open, so God, I, I'm going to show you, like, physically what I want my life to be in a posture towards you. I, look, I don't want to pray like this. I want to be open-handed. So, Lord, I, by op being open-handed, I, I literally don't mind, God, if you interrupt my plans. That's what this is saying. Lord, I, I don't even mind if you change my plans. God, I want my faith or my trust in you, I want to be so open-handed that whatever context or circumstance I find myself in, that I'm like, God, my hands are open to you, and I want to keep them open no matter what happens. So I'd invite you to maybe do this with me. Say this prayer this morning. So if we could kind of stand up at this time. If we could stand up. And you can't pray this prayer, an open-handed prayer with closed hands, by the way. Just want to, <laughs> you got you to have your hands open. 
kind of open your hands. And maybe this is the time to make that commitment to your Heavenly Father. And let's say this together. As my hands are open, so is my life towards you, Heavenly Father. Let's do that one more time. As my hands are open, so is my life towards you, Heavenly Father. Lord, you see the hands. You see our hands that are open, Lord, and you know this is not an easy thing. Because there is an instinctively thing in all of us that want to control everything. But the reality is we actually control probably nothing. And yet it's scary when we come face to face with that. But Lord, we want to have a different kind of posture. Why? Because we serve a different kind of king. And we pledge allegiance to our Savior that was born in a manger. And so we want to have open hands. That we want to realize that if we were there in the first century, we would have been wondering, God, what are you up to? But Lord, we see now that the Christmas story has a big message, and that is, God, you can be trusted. So we want to have open hands with our life, with our family, with our career, where, where we live, what we do. God, we want to have open hands to, to you. Help us in this pursuit because it's not going to be easy to keep our hands open as we pursue you this Christmas season. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen, amen. All right, before you go, find three people, give them a high five and say, I wonder what the next surprise is.